We're going to be in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. It's on page 1012 in your blue Bible. Um, it will be helpful to me if you open to it. Maybe it will be helpful for you too. Let me pray um, and ask God's help. Uh, Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you rather than unpleasing to you. For you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. No one, no one really likes it when people claim one thing and do another. People don't like that. So when the mayor claims her city schools are so wonderful, she would have gladly attended them herself, only to be discovered as sending her kids to a posh private school in the suburbs. People don't like it. Or when the online fitness guru sells you on his all-natural approach to health, only to be discovered as taking illegal supplements. Or perhaps worse, when the preacher pontificates about this high standard of ethics and morality but doesn't attempt to live up to it himself. We don't like it when people claim one thing and do another. And it doesn't feel very good to be a person who claims one thing but doesn't live up to it or doesn't do it. But this happens all the time. And it happens all the time because it's just a lot easier to say something than to do it. It's a lot easier to claim something, to talk big about something, to say you love justice and mercy and God and people. It's an altogether different thing to do it. And if this is true in the realm of human affairs, how much more so in spiritual this is James' driving point in our passage today, James 2, verses 14 through 26. This is his driving point. The genuineness of Christian faith is evidenced by what you do, not by what you claim. When it comes to Christianity, it's what you do, not just what you say that displays who you are. Christian faith, for it to be authentic, means that Christian claims and must be accompanied by Christian deeds or acts or what James will call works. Faith claims must have faith works. Here's how he puts it, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. Now, James isn't merely concerned with whether or not Christians are authentic people, as important as that is. His concern drills much deeper and actually goes down to the bedrock of what Christians call salvation. This is why he says in verse 14, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, he asks then, can that faith save him? That's a loaded term for James, save. What he means when he uses it throughout his letter is he means be made right with God. Be delivered from God's judgment at the end of time and be ushered into eternal life. Now, James knows that we're made right with God when we genuinely put faith 
in His Son and what His Son has done for us. He knows that, that faith is the operative reality that brings us into a saving relationship with God. James is just asking what I think is a pretty profound question. He's saying, how do you know if that so-called faith is real? Is it enough that it's just a claim? Or do you have to look for something deeper? And James' concern should concern us because even in an increasingly post-Christian culture, it's still so easy to claim you're a Christian. To tell your grandkids you're a Christian, your kids you're a Christian, to tell your parents you're a Christian, your youth group leader. It's just so easy to claim to be a Christian, but it's much harder to actually live as one. And even as religious observance declines in the West, a poll done last year on Americans found that 55% of those, those ages 18 to 29 said they were Christians, 55%. 62% of those ages 30 to 49, 74% of those 50 to 64, and 77% of those ages 65 and over. So is this accurate? If it is, way over half the people of the 330 million people, way over half in America are Christians because they filled out an online form and there was a box that said Christian and they clicked it. So I'm just asking, James is asking, is that sufficient evidence to say that those people are Christians? James would answer decidedly, no. You have to look for something more. You have to ask if a claim coincides with any life change or any doing. And so what James is asking us today is just the same. Is your so-called Christian faith merely a claim or is it supported by real change? Does your faith work? Does it have works, James asks. Now, here's how he approaches helping us ask this question in these verses. He essentially sets in for, before us two types of faith and compares them. The, the first type of faith is dead faith. He just says faith without works is dead, dead faith. And then he sets alongside it living faith or alive faith. And he does this with four examples. The armchair philanthropist, verses 15 through 16. The doctrinally sound demon, verse 19. Then in verses 20 through 26, he turns to Abraham the patriarch and Rahab the prostitute. The first two, the philanthropist sitting in his armchair and the doctrine of sound demon, the first two are examples, cautionary examples of dead faith. The second two motivating examples, Abraham and Rahab, motivating examples of living faith. So here's what we'll do. We'll just set up these two headings and we'll follow James' lead. We're going to look at dead faith and we're going to look at living faith. And as we do so, I just want to ask you, let this probe your faith. Now, <clears throat> if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is a super helpful opportunity for you because you get to see inside the hood, under the hood of what Christian faith is supposed to be. And then you can figure out if your so-called Christian friends are Christians or not. And you'll have some idea of what you'd be getting into <laughs> if the Lord claims your life. Okay, so let's start with dead faith and its deadliness. James begins with a guy we'll call the armchair philanthropist. And here, um, with this example and the following one about the demon, I really just want to lay out three things, three signs of dead faith and why it's deadly. First, dead faith is useless, verses 15 through 16. It doesn't benefit others. To make this point, 
James uses an example, probably in a church setting, of a so-called believer paying lip service to a needy friend. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? This person isn't in need of a vacation home or a second set of Italian loafers. Their needs are abject. They don't have sufficient clothing to keep warm and they don't have food to get through the day. Here in the modern world, we rarely in the West encounter people like this. We have homeless shelters. We have a government that supports people. It doesn't mean we don't need to care for them. But in the ancient world, there was no safety net. This person is in dire need. And what we find is that a Christian in the community pays them lip service. He says, with warm sentiment, basically a prayer. Brother, may the peace of God be upon you. May he clothe you and keep you well fed. Go in peace. But he, he has no intention in his heart of actually doing anything. He's an armchair philanthropist. He's not going to get up and get his hands involved. And James asked at the beginning and end of this little section, what good is it? Answer, none. Faith that says to a person in need, be well, but intends to do nothing is useless. Faith expressed in warm sentimentality, James concludes, verse 17, if it does not also have works, is dead. It's dead. You know, um, What's obvious from this point, just just to notice a few things, is first, Christianity is supposed to be useful, practically useful to the needs of the world. You know, a lot of people today um, write about Christianity. They say that it's detrimental to the world. Um, And this is very naive. Anyone who carefully reads the last 2,000 years of history has to understand that most of our moral intuitions about the needy and the helpless come from Christianity. So the historian Tom Holland, in his wonderful book, Dominion, He says, in the ancient world, there was little in the character of the gods, Greco and Roman gods, the gods of Babylon. There was little in the character of the gods, nor in the teachings of the philosophers, to justify any assumption that the poor, just by virtue of their poverty, had a right to aid. If you have an inclination that needy people ought to be helped simply because they're needy, you're breathing Christian air. Now, Christians haven't always been useful. They haven't lived up to this. But Christianity, friend, is supposed to be useful. Now, think of how this might apply to your personal life. If if you're a Christian and you're married, and someone were to talk to your spouse, another person who was thinking about getting married, and they would say, hey, I could marry a non-Christian or a Christian. You're married to a Christian. What benefits are there for being married to a Christian? Why is it useful? What would your spouse say? Or maybe you're employed. You have a boss and coworkers, And someone came to them and said, you know, we're hiring. We're thinking about hiring someone who says they're a Christian. Is there any benefit to having a person around with Christian faith? You'd hope that person would say, oh, my goodness. You put a need in front of them. They're like a dog on a bone. You don't have to worry about ethics. They're wonderful. Or maybe you're a student. And someone asked your teacher, Is there any use, any benefit to having Christians in your class? What would they say? Faith is supposed to be useful. 
It's supposed to have a benefit in the face of needs. When it doesn't, James says, it might be dead. That's the first thing he points to. Second, dead faith is deceitful. Verses 18 and 19, we'll see what this means. Here in verse 18, um, a detractor is brought in. James writes in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. What they're doing is, is they're, they're kind of leveraging this Christian teaching that God gifts each one of us differently. And this is true, but what they're trying to do is separate the fact that saying, well, some people are just gifted to have faith. I mean, God made them in such a way with intellect and emotion where it's just easy for them to understand and it's easy for them to hold on to something inside. But he made other people who are more wired to help the needy. Now, these people, they couldn't explain the Trinity. They couldn't explain predestination. But that's because they're too busy helping people. Look, James, some people have faith and some have works. So get off it. But he, he won't. He says, you foolish person. He does call them a fool. Show me your, show me your faith without, without any works and I'll show you my faith by my works. And what he's drilling into is he's saying, look, you cannot have faith in a God who came to serve you by dying for you and have no movement to want to serve others. And to show that a merely intellectual faith is impossible, James ushers in a devastating example. This is the second example. The doctrinally sound demon. Verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. This, this would have been one of the most common early professions of faith. It goes back to Deuteronomy. The Jews would say this. God is one. I believe in one God. So what he's saying is you have great doctrine. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you know demons wouldn't have to cross their fingers when they say the creed? We know from Jesus' own ministry that demons understand who he is faster than humans do. Remember, there's many times Jesus is working and doing ministry and the crowds have no idea who he is. And then we read things like this. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? This is a demon. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Later, a demon says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? Satan and his minions have good theology. So James is making a pretty profound point. Doctrine and theology do not indicate heart transformation. You can, you can believe God is God, believe he sent his son to die for you, and not love him or follow him at all. Dead faith can be deceptive because it clothes itself in sound doctrine. Um, I spent some time in graduate school in England at a very ri academically rigorous school. And I, my supervisor was in the theology and religious studies department and, and her office was on the very top and I would go in there and meet with her and then I would have lectures I'd go to there with different faculty. And some, sometimes I would come away from these interactions and realize these people know the Bible and the original languages and they know theology and church history better than I ever will. And I'd, yet I'd come away often cold. It would feel almost dead. And then once a week, I'd ride my bicycle to my small group. My small group met in this young couple's house. These, this young couple, they weren't in that town as college students. They were stationed there through the Air Force. And um, I just always remember the wife in particular. She was such a, so warm and so welcoming. She would have um, 
mugs for each one of us. You could choose your type of tea or coffee you wanted. She would have made something fresh. And she would always take our prayer requests and pray for us during the week. And I would always, I'd always feel like the faith in that home was so alive. And it wasn't dressed up in academic theology, but it was, it was alive. And I don't say this to downplay the importance of sound doctrine, but to make this point, sound doctrine and theology are not meant to be academic robes that we wear for prestige. Sound doctrine is only helpful when it clothes Christ, the living Christ. It's His garments. It's sound because it fits Him. It's sound because it suits Him. It reflects to us who He is. But dead faith can be deceiving because, friends, it can be clothed in sound doctrine, what James calls demon faith. Third, the third mark of dead faith, or the third reason it's deadly, and this is the hardest one, dead faith can damn. In verse 14, we already saw this. James asks, can such faith, meaning dead faith, save you? His implication is, don't count on it. Can faith that's useless and just a bunch of dry doctrine with no life, can it save you? He's suggesting that faith without works can't save. And he states this explicitly in verse 24. You see that a person is justified, saved, made right with God, by works and not by faith alone. Now, some people have wondered if James is contradicting Paul here. James and Paul lived at the same time. They ministered at the same time. Paul wrote 13 letters. James wrote one. Paul was out in the Gentile world. James was back in Jerusalem. And, and it seems like James is contradicting Paul. Listen to what Paul says. You know, James is saying you're saved not by faith alone, by faith in works. Now, here's Paul, Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Ephesians 2 verse 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What's going on here? Here's what Paul's teaching. This is basic Christianity. You're saved, you're made right with God by grace through faith. We're saved not by working to earn God's favor, but we're saved because Jesus has worked on our behalf. That's grace. We're saved not by trusting in ourselves, but by trusting in Jesus. That's faith, grace, and faith. Now, is James smuggling into this equation works? Well, there's some grace, but you got to do like, I don't know, 15% of it is your works. What's he doing? James, I think, is correcting an abuse or a twisting of what Paul's teaching People were abusing the message of salvation by grace. They were using it as license for lawlessness. And Paul himself knows this, and he points it out in Romans. So he says in Romans 3.8, And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? You see that? People are slandering the things Paul's saying by twisting them. What they're basically doing is this. They're saying, okay, here's the Christian's logic. Here's what it is. When you're a sinner, 
rather than having to do a bunch of good works to get God to like you, to earn his favor, God applies grace to you and he accepts you even though you're a sinner. He does this through the cross, okay? So he covers your sin with grace and forgiveness. This in turn brings glory to God because it shows what an amazing Savior he is. It's like he's swinging down, saving people out of shark-infested water, out of burning buildings. And the more he does this saving, the more great the superhero God looks. So the logic goes like this. Why not go on getting yourselves in terrible situations of sin so God can show more and more how much he can save? So go on sinning that grace may abound. This is what was happening And Paul knows it, and James knows it. So he's saying, not so fast. He peers into the deep reality of what it means to be saved by grace through faith. And he says the following, and Paul agrees with him on this. He goes, look, you're brought into a right relationship by grace through faith, through trusting in God. This is an act of God, and it's the root. It's the root of the Christian tree. But if that tree is really a Christian tree, it will by necessity grow up and produce Christian fruit. You know an orange tree by its oranges. And so James is just saying if you don't see any fruit, you have reason to question whether or not there's that Christian root. The Puritans who love to get into the details on these things, they they would have distinguished like this. They would have said Paul's focusing on the means of salvation. It happens by grace through faith. The means, James is focusing on the evidence or effect So faith that never produces any Christian fruit is not faith at all. This isn't saying you have to be perfect to think you have saving faith. It simply means that if your life evidences zero change, zero interest in God, you hate church, you don't mean what you say whenever you talk about Christian things, you don't do anybody any good, if that's you and you still come here and say the creed, you need to listen to James this morning. He's like a doctor profoundly concerned with the symptoms he's seeing in your life. So that's the third thing about dead faith. Is if our faith is utterly useless, dressed up in doctrine with no life, it could damn us. Remember Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you to people who say, but Lord, Lord, we even prayed in your name. That's dead faith. That's not where James leaves us. He turns next to living faith. He moves in verses 20 through 26 to look at Abraham and Rahab. And and here's, here's where he puts a positive vision of real faith in front of us. And the question I want to ask here, the way I want to frame this is, how do works enliven faith? How do works play the role in bringing your faith to life? And You know, you could think about this, because this is kind of complicated, but you could think about it with this image. This is not a perfect image. Don't press the analogy too far. But imagine if being a Christian was like being a violinist. And so God gives you a violin, sheer grace. He gives it to you. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to earn it. He gives it to you. But you, you never, ever play it. You never pick it up. You put it on a shelf. Are you a violinist? Or is that violin actually being a violin? And as you pick it up and start to play it, you begin to engage it. You're working it. You're working the free gift. Even if you're terrible at first, you're still a violinist. No one takes the violin away from you because you're not good. So maybe you're a baby Christian 
and you're, try, you're plucking strings, you can pray for about 30 seconds, then you lose interest. You're swearing up a storm, but every now and then you catch yourself. You're thinking about maybe sharing your faith with a coworker. I mean, you're, just, you're, you're learning. You're, you're engaging it. So what I want you to see here is when, when James brings up works, it's not earning you the right to have a violin. He's saying, don't you want to play it? Don't you want to engage it? Look, this is how faith works. It's an instrument you play. It's a life you live. What good is a car you don't drive, a book you don't read, a plane you don't fly, a seed you don't plant and cultivate, a muscle you don't use? Certain things only come to life when they're worked, when they're engaged. So let me show you four ways, four ways from this section that works enliven your faith. Number one, works enliven faith by displaying it. They display it. James says to his detractor in verse 18, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Notice the verb show. He's saying prove, display to me you have faith without doing anything, with doing no works. What if your neighbor asked you that? Hey, how would you show me you're a Christian, they asked. And you're like, well, just let me say the creed. They're like, I know a lot of historians that could say the creed. I know a lot of atheists that could read the Bible. Show me your faith. What would you do? What would you do? What, this is really interesting, what we believe, what you believe, you, you have beliefs right now. You have thoughts in your head, you have beliefs in your heart, and they're invisible. Nobody in this room knows what they are except you. I can't see them. I don't know what they are, but you have them. Right now, you're thinking about what they are. You have them. I can't see what you believe, but I can see what you do. I can see how you treat people. I can see how you spend your time. I can see how you spend your money. And what James is saying is faith is displayed by what we do. This is just keeping with Jesus, his brother's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the first thing. Works display to people that you're a Christian, that you're a changed person. Second, works enliven faith by engaging it. Um, down in verses 21 and 22, Paul, excuse me, James gets into Abraham. And I just want you to notice something he says here. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, verse 22, that faith was active along with works. I'll pause there. Verse 22 is probably the most important verse in the passage. Um, he says, faith was active along with works. And the, the, the verb used here in Greek is just one word, and it means it, it was engaged with, it was working in. So, he, so somehow works plug faith into a bigger system. Here's an analogy for how you might think about this. If you remember back to being in science class and you're learning about electricity and your teacher brings out a light bulb and a battery, right? And you, you have this wire and you can connect one end of the battery, the positive end, say, to the light bulb and it's connected, right? It's, it's perfectly connected, but nothing happens. And you keep checking it, it's perfectly connected, but nothing happens. What do you need to do? You have to close the loop 
You have to connect the circuit. You need to take the other wire and connect it from the bulb to the negative side of the battery. So it's a circuit. When that happens, electricity can flow and the light bulb lights up. This is how faith and work go together. Your works engage your faith in real time. So with Abraham, he's got this faith in his head that says, I believe God is totally trustworthy in all things. And God says to him, really, Abraham, all things, not just like 99% of them. No, God, all things. Okay, sacrifice your son. Now he has to, in real time, enact a work that will engage that belief in real time and make it real. If he doesn't do it, though, what do we have to believe about his faith? It has a big question mark over it, doesn't it? Works by forcing you to live out what you believe, they engage, they engage your faith in a broader system of dependence on God. So it's almost like the Holy Spirit is the electrical current. And because you're like, okay, I, I believe God's dependable, but I'm going to quit my job because he's leading me to do that. And I'm going to go out and search for a job. And I actually have to depend on you, God. I'm depending on you in real time, a real work of faith. And all of a sudden, you have to click in. It actually matters if God's dependable. And the circuit begins to run. Some of you know this. You live this life. But works enliven faith because they engage it in real time. Third, works enliven faith by perfecting it. They display it, they engage it, now they perfect it. This is just staying right there in verse 22. Notice he says, you see that faith was active along with works. Last phrase, and faith was completed by his works. The, the word completed there could also mean perfected, brought to its proper end, matured. It's like through works, faith grows up. It grows a beard. It goes out and gets a job. It acts like a man. It stops acting like a child. It's perfected. You know, there's certain things, certain bodies of knowledge, certain realities in your life that cannot grow to maturity unless they're worked. I was a high school basketball coach uh, for a few years after college in the Philadelphia Public League. And it was a boys team. And when you're, when you're coaching, every now and then you have to get the guys off the floor and sit them down in a room and draw up new plays and a new offense. You begin by drawing it on a whiteboard. And so it's all these symbols and little dots. And you're looking at the team. You're looking at your point guard, your floor general. And you're saying, do you get this? And at some point, the boys get tired of it. They want to go play. And so they're like, yeah, we get it. We totally know this play. We believe in it. Yes, it works. Do they really believe in it? Do they know it? You know this if you've coached. You, they don't know if they know the play until they have to execute it in a game. And they don't really believe it works until they execute it a game and it works and they look at you running down the floor and they go, that worked. That was a good play. Faith is like this. You want to be a lover of others? You want to have the love of God for others in your life. You're not going to develop it by reading books about love. I mean, you may get some tips. You're not going to become someone who trusts in God by reading Calvin's Institutes. You may get prepared for what it would look like, but then God's going to baptize you in the fire of real experience. And it's only going to be in that work, that working out in real time of what you believe, that your faith can be perfected. So, fourth and finally, works enliven faith 
through displaying it, through engaging it, through perfecting it, and finally, through sacrifice. If our faith is in a God who's crucified for us, and we're being transformed in His likeness, faith is only really going to grow when it's expressed through works of sacrifice. And this is exactly what James highlights in this verse, excuse me, this passage, he picks Abraham and Rahab. These aren't just like simple little works they did. They are radically profound, costly acts of sacrifice. In verse 21, I think 20 or 21, James literally says that Abraham put his son Isaac on the altar, the altar. Rahab, you may not know her story, Rahab was a prostitute living in Jericho. Right when Israel was coming to take the land, the spies go up to spy out the land. Rahab lets them in. Rahab has come to faith in God by hearing the stories about Yahweh delivering the Israelites from Egypt. She believes in this God, so she hides them. She protects them, lets them out by a different corridor. And in doing this, she, she radically puts herself in jeopardy. Extremely costly act. So works, there is a type of work, friends, that will require you to Actively consecrate yourself to God through radical sacrifice. And there are works that will require you to radically commit to compassionately love someone who is almost unlovable, save the fact that they're made in the image of God. And it will be in that sacrifice, that work of sacrifice, that your faith doesn't just glow like the light bulb in the connected circuit, but it begins to actually look something like the glory of your Lord, whose glory it was to empty himself, to humble himself, to follow in obedience to his father, the call to lay down his life, to die for you, to perform the great work that purchased you salvation, out of which you just respond by saying, I want to be like you, Lord. I want to live out of love. If this is our Lord, if this is our Lord publicly displayed, crucified for people, how can our faith ever remain private and passive? It ought not to be so. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? For as the body apart from the works is dead, so also faith Apart from works, he's dead. Friends, do not trust in your works to save you. Trust in Christ. But because of Christ, may we be a church that puts our faith to work. Amen.